It was the eve of 2004, and my college roommate and I decided that this was the semester that we were going to get buff. That was not a joke. Well, we had it all figured out. We were going to go wake up early three days a week before classes, and we were going to walk to our campus gym in the weight room, and there we were going to work on our glutes and our biceps and all that good stuff. We were going to do it. Now, obviously, this plan was destined to fail from the beginning. I mean, what college kid wakes up early for class, before classes to go to the gym? I mean, come on, it's not... It's not going to work out. And obviously that was the same for us. And I find actually that the inevitable breaking of New Year's resolutions uh, somewhat mirror the five stages of grief. Now, hear me out here. It starts off with denial, right? It's like, oh no, we're, we're doing okay. Sure, we miss Monday and maybe Wednesday, but we're still on track. It's, it's fine. And then as thing goes on, it sort of moves to anger. It's like, oh, why can't I... Why can't I keep this resolution? What's going on? You get anger. Then it moves to bargaining. Well, what if we move it to Saturday? Because, you know, Tuesdays never worked out very well, and maybe we'll just do that. Or we never really wanted to start on January 1st. You know, everyone starts on January 1st. We're going to start on the 10th or the 15th or the 20th, and bargaining begins to break out. Then it moves to depression. Just where's the Cheetos? Like, just time to... It's just, it's, we just, we're giving up. And finally, as we've processed through all the stages, you get to acceptance, where I'm not going to be buff, it's just not in the cards for me, and I am okay with it. So whatever your New Year's resolution is, whatever you've written on your name tag this morning, uh, may you move swiftly and peacefully through the stages uh, over the next uh, month or two, if you're, if you're lucky. So... And speaking of moving, we're moving actually into a new series, as you saw from the clip. We're still in Hebrews, but we're moving into a series we're calling Resolution. And the reason is, is because we think that as we're looking at Hebrews, that the text in this section of Hebrews is going to offer us some meaningful resolutions for us as, as a community, as for us as individuals, but not in the same way as we're typically used to understanding resolutions. If you have your uh, insert uh, in your bulletin, we'll start off there. The first one, resolutions aren't kept by trying harder, being better, and creating the right programs. You find that to be true? If you've tried to do this before and you come up short again and again, you learn very quickly that resolutions aren't kept by trying harder, being better, or creating the right programs, particularly spiritually when we're dealing with an almighty God, when we are addressing and communicating and communing and abiding with a real personal God of the universe. It doesn't happen by us working really hard or trying to be better or building the right program. But change comes when our thoughts are fixed on Christ and allow him to change us from the inside out. So change doesn't happen by trying harder. Change happens when we fix our thoughts on Christ, who in turn changes us and makes us more like himself so that we can be the type of people he's calling us to be. So we're going to start in Hebrews again, obviously, this morning. So flip, if you've got your Bibles, flip over to Hebrews chapter 3. 
as we look at our passage this morning. If you know my preaching, you know that uh, we jump around a lot, so have those Bibles handy because we're going to be bouncing around a lot uh, today as we look at some of these connections and some cool things I think the the author is doing here this morning. So Hebrews chapter 3, have them ready to go. Um, Keep your finger uh, in in Hebrews as we move around. But let me pray first as we we begin. Father, we just uh, come uh, to you. We come before you in your, in your holy scripture, your words, these ancient documents, Lord, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of years old, and we know that they speak to us in the same way they speak, they've spoken to generations before us. So God, we come humbly before your word and help us to hear from you this morning as you speak to us through it. In your name I pray, amen and amen. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll start right there in verse 1. It says Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. But Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. So we see that the Hebrew author is, uh, has been comparing Jesus to different pe- things. We've been looking at Jesus uh, being compared to the angels and to the high priests and to the prophets and things like that. And now the, the author is moving into comparing Jesus to Moses. And what we see here from this text is that Moses served as a foreshadow of Christ. And in fact, the whole Old Testament is serving as a foreshadow to Christ. But here specifically, Moses is serving as a foreshadow to Christ. A foreshadow is a warning or an indication of a future event. It's a warning or an indication of a future event. Now, I watch a lot of kids shows these days having, uh, having kids. And so uh, kids shows are just kind of really funny because they're very obvious because they have to speak a language to, uh, you know, to, to children. And I find that in these shows, the foreshadowing in these shows are really funny and really obvious. Some of the parents are nodding right now. So we'll be watching Paw Patrol or something like that. And one of the pups, right at the beginning of the episode, will say, I don't need anyone. I can do it all by myself, right? And you're sitting there, you're going, this whole episode is going to be about you not being able to do it by yourself and learning that you need, you're going to be put in a situation somewhere that is going to call on the others to rescue you. And then at the end of the show, you are going to learn that you do need others. And sure enough, there goes the pup and he gets in trouble or something happens and the rest of the, the, rest of the patrol come and save the day. It's just really obvious that you see the foreshadowing in these kids, uh, in these kids shows. It's a little harder sometimes when we're reading the Old Testament to see how things are pointing to Christ. But Moses, and like I said, in turn, the entire Old Testament serves as a foreshadow to Christ. It provides warnings and indications and hints and images of, future, of the future event that is Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to take a closer look at, uh, at how Moses has done this, because I think you're going to see some really cool connections here about the life of Moses and how it connects to Jesus. So get your Bibles ready. Flip on over to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament, the second book of the entire Bible. So it'll be pretty easy to find. Flip on over to Exodus chapter 1. 
I want to see some of the history of Moses and kind of remind you some of the backstory of, of Moses and kind of where he came from uh, to kind of get us a sense of some of the big marks about his life and what was going on. So if you're there, Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 22, it says this. Or let's, excuse me, let's start in verse 21 or 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she, could not hid him, she couldn't hid him any longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed a child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the mile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So we see early on, the very first months of Moses' life, Moses must flee a mass genocide of infant children. So right from the beginning, he has to flee a mass exodus. He has to flee a mass genocide of infant children. Exodus 2, not too far, right there next. Exodus 2, 15. We see that Moses now grows up, and he is now under the rule and sort of the kingship of the pharaohs. And he sees, if you remember the story, he sees an Egyptian beating a, a, a slave, an Israelite slave, and he stops and in doing so kills the Egyptian. And so now Pharaoh is furious, and we pick up the story, uh, uh, verse, chapter 2 and ver verse 15, it says this. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. In fact, Acts uh, chapter 7 gives us a little more detail, but it says that Moses flees the desert for 40 years. So before Moses starts any of his public ministry, he flees to the wilderness and spends 40 years in the wilderness before he starts anything publicly before the Lord. Now we're going to jump over to Exodus 15, just a few pages to the right. So after these 40 years, Moses returns to Egypt. He frees the Israelite people, the plagues and all of, all of that good stuff. They leave Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. And it says, the rabbis teach us, it says that between them crossing over the Red Sea and by the time they get to Mount Sinai, that the Israelite people are tempted three times in the wilderness, three times in the desert. So Exodus uh, 15, starting in verse 22 they're in Mara. It says this. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went to the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why they called the place Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, why are, what are we to drink? And we see this first temptation is a temptation of the lack of water. And then later on in, verse, in chapter 15, bread. So they're faced with this reality that they do not have water and they do not have bread. And so they grumble against Moses and God. Deuteronomy gives us a little bit of insight into this text. In Deuteronomy 8, it says that they were, they were placed in Mara so that they might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
So Deuteronomy 8 says, they went to Marah and they learned that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In Exodus 17, so just a couple of chapters later, they put, they're put to the second test. They're tempted in the second way at Masa. And in Masa, again, they're thirsty. They're looking for water. And this is the story of Moses striking the rock and water coming from the walk. But it says that they tested the Lord. And so they would not move another step until the Lord provided them water. And the Lord was angry at the people because they tested him. They didn't trust him. And so he actually calls the place Masa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling. Because Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord not among us? Deuteronomy 6 gives us another little bit of insight into this story. It says that they go to Masa in order to learn not to put the Lord their God to the test. So they go to Masa so they could learn not to put the Lord their God to the test. Finally, they get to Rephidim in Exodus 17 in verse, Exodus 17 in verse 8. And in Rephidim, they are tempted to reject the kingdom of God. They are, they are um, attacked by the Amalekites, and they, uh, they have to wonder, do we fight this, uh, this kingdom off, or do we just accept it? Do we just go along with them? Do we just let them take us? And so they fight. This is actually the one temptation they somewhat overcome in a good way. They're faithful to the Lord. They fight. This is the one where Moses keeps his arms up, and as, as long as his arms are up, they win, and as soon as his arms go down, they lose, and so he needs help holding his arms up in order for them to win the battle. But in uh, Deuteronomy 6 again, it tells us that they learned in this test not to go after other gods, the gods of the people around you. And so they are tempted three times in the wilderness. Finally, they get to Mount Sinai. And when they enter Mount Sinai, they finally get there. Moses goes up onto a mountain. This is Exodus 19. Moses goes up onto a mountain and receives God's law. And for large chunks of the rest of the, the law, the first five books of, of the Old Testament, is them, is Moses giving the people the law that they are supposed to follow in order to live in the land that God has sent them to. So we see that Moses is following this certain pattern. He's following this track. And later Moses even recognized that everything he's doing, whether it be his rescue as a baby or his temp the temptations or running to the wilderness, everything that he's doing is pointing to a greater expression. And so Deuteronomy 18, he says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. God will someday raise up a prophet like me from among you, from the fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So even Moses recognizes everything that's been going on, all this stuff that we're doing is somehow pointing, somehow foreshadowing to something greater that's going to happen later on. And so he says, someday a prophet like me is going to come and he's going to fulfill all of this and everything we do. Thousands of years later, here comes Jesus. Flip over to Matthew chapter 2. I want you to see this. That's why I'm having you flip here because it's just, it's really cool to see what Jesus is doing here and how he's fulfilling everything that's happening with Moses and even Moses' prediction that some other prophet would come like him. 
As we say this, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13, it says this. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And we find that early on in Jesus' life, he flees a mass genocide. Flip one page over to uh, Matthew 4. Matthew 4, starting in verse 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. For Jesus starts his public ministry, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And then after these 40 days, he is tempted by the devil, starting in verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is commanded. I will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, and it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. I will give, uh, I, all of this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left and the angels came and attended him. And then right after that, he goes up onto a mountain. Chapter 5 says this. Now when he saw the crowd, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So Jesus goes up onto a mountain and receives and, and gives the people the fulfilled law of God. And in fact, early on in that message, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And early on in that message, Jesus says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Moses flees a mass genocide, goes to the desert for 40 years before his public ministry, is tempted three times in the wilderness, and then goes up onto a mountain to give God's law. Jesus flees a mass genocide, goes into the wilderness for 40 days before his public ministry, is tempted three times in the exact same way. He succeeds where the Israelites fail and then goes up onto a mountainside and gives us the law. And we begin to see all the fulfillment of what Jesus is doing here. We're beginning to see where the Israelites failed, Jesus fulfilled. 
So everything that Moses was doing, remember that Deuteronomy passage, he says, someone's going to do something far greater than this. A prophet from among you will come, and you are to listen to him. And then Jesus mirrors Moses' life in a new and fulfilled way. In your inserts, Moses is the foreshadow of Christ, who is the fulfillment of Moses. Moses is the foreshadow of Christ, who is the fulfillment of Moses. Now, what did Moses do? Let's take a look a little bit at the next passage in the text. What did Moses actually do in his ministry to be this faithful servant? So in in verse 5 of our Hebrews passage, in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, it says this. Moses was, a faith, was as faithful of a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. There it is again. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to someone who would come in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. Now, the text talks about both Moses and Jesus, the greater son, being faithful over God's house. Now, in Hebrew, when you see references to the house, that typically means the temple. So when you hear this word house, or they went to the house, that doesn't mean a literal house. That means the temple. It It was a way that the Hebrews used, a word that Hebrews used to mean the temple, So just like our own home, the people understood the tabernacle and later the permanent temple as the place where God lived. I want to show you that a little bit. So flip back over to Exodus one more time. Exodus 25. I want to show you how this understanding of a house being a temple, that the people understood a temple to be the house where God lived. So in Exodus 25, in verse 8, says this. God is speaking to Moses here, and he says this. Then have them make me a sanctuary for me. Have them make a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then a long, big chunk of, of Exodus is, is him explaining everything he wanted in order to build him a house. So basically, God is telling Moses, I want a place to live. So build me a house. And I love love how the passage says, and I want you to follow exactly what I'm telling you to do. I want the furnishings and the patterns to be exactly like I show you. This resonates with me as a new homeowner, because when you walk into a house, it's totally bare, it's totally empty. And we get to then kind of make it ourselves. And so uh, I have learned through this process that you listen to what your wife wants when it comes to the furnishings and the decorations and things like that. Like you just, I even told Molly, I said, uh, I will hang pictures, I will paint, I will do anything. But you have to pick the colors and you have to pick the arrangement and then you tell me where it goes and I'll do it. But I totally just 
you know, rest in your, in your uh, interior design skills. I'm just going to let you do your thing. This is what God is doing. God is an interior decorator. He said, Moses, I want you to build me a house, and this is exactly how I want you to do it. Here's the furnishings. Here's, here's the layout and the pattern, and, and I want you to follow it precisely. I want you to build me a house. And so that's what Moses does, a temporary one until a permanent one is built. But he builds him a house. A house is referenced a lot of places in it. It talks about in Psalms that we are to go to the house of the Lord. Or in Second uh, in Samuel, when uh, God appears before David and says, hey, David, I want you to build me a permanent structure. We've been living in, I've been living in a tent, but now I actually want a, a structure made of cedar. He said, I want to, literally, he says, I want you to build me a house. So the people of God have, have always understood God living, dwelling in a house. And so they reference that. They go up to the house, God's house. What we find that a house serves two major purposes, a temple. Back in ancient times, they served two major purposes. The first one we just talked about it is it was the place where the God of that temple lived. So if you were to ask like where does this temple or that Greek God or whatever, where do they live? You would point them to the temple of that God. If you were to ask where do the Longs live, the answer would be 261 Clearfield Drive, Williamsville, New York, 14221. If you were to drive by that address, likely one of us would be there. That's where we live. Our living room actually has big bay windows that look out into the street. And last week I was sitting on my couch and just, you know, hanging out with me and things like that. And all of a sudden this blue van slowly drove by, kind of like a little too slow, you know, it just kind of slowly drove by. It kind of caught my attention. I looked, I looked over there and kind of figure out who it was. And I met eyes with the person and I just got this really quick wave and then they drove off really, really weird and funny. And I was kind of looking out the window and Molly saw me. She's like, Brian, what are you doing? I said, I think Pastor Mario and Denise Delgado just drove by our house. <laughs> so I pulled out my phone and I, I texted him. I said, did you just drive by our house and wave? And I waited. And sure enough, a few minutes later, I got a text back and he wrote, yes, with that creepy little emoji con, like wink, like wink. You know, like I'm like, ah, like... <laughs> Now, obviously, they were just dri they were driving by and um, they were going to somewhere else, and, but they knew where we lived. They've been to our house before. And so when they drove by, they slowed down to see where we were because they know that's where the longs live. This is the same concept as the temple. If you wanted to go see your God, you went to his house. You slowed down on your way and peeked in his windows. You wanted to see God, you went to his house. So the number one thing that we understood about a temple is a temple was the place where the God lived. The second thing is the temple also served as a way to bear witness to what the God was like. It also served to bear witness to what the God was like. Houses tend to reveal who people are and what they value. From the decor, the furnishings, the size, the cleanliness, it all points back to the people who live there. If I were to come to your house unannounced after church today, knock on your door and just walked around, what would I learn about you? Some of you are like, please don't do that. That's not what I want. If you came to my house unannounced today and walked through my house, what would you learn about me? You learn all sorts about people from their house their decorations, where they've arranged things, what they put in the most prominent places of their house. 
All of these things mean and are, are, are kind of work to point back to the people that live there. This is the same thing with God's house or the house of a God. This is where we get the concept of a house becoming a home, right? A house is just a building, but a home is where a family lives or where, where, where people live. And a home tells us something about it because it ex- a home is an extension of ourselves. And this is what a temple did too. It served as the home of the God, and so it was an extension of the God itself. They were constructed in a way to communicate to the watching world what the God of that temple was like. So at the time of the early church in Ephesus, just to give you an example, stood one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis. Now Artemis was the twin god of Apollo in Greek mythology. She was the the goddess of abundance, hunting, and wealth. You see we have a rendering here. This was the temple of of Artemis in Ephesus. So Paul, when Paul is writing the book of Ephesians, he's writing to a group of Christians, writing to a church who have to walk by this structure nearly every day. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Like I said, Artemis was the goddess of abundance, hunting, and wildlife. This, this, uh, this temple had 127 columns that stood 60 feet high and measured 377 feet long by 180 feet wide, which nearly doubles the size of the Parthenon in Greece. It is thought to be the first building completely constructed with marble. It featured columns, scenes from some of the most well-respected Greek sculptures. Painters adorned the walls and gilded columns of gold and silver. This thing was magnificent. One of the biggest wonders in all the world, the size and magnitude of the temple of Artemis. A statue here I'll show you of her sat, in the, sat right in the, the middle of it. Um, as you can see, uh, they called one of the nicknames is that she was the many-breasted Artemis who stood like a nursing mother that could nurse everyone, that everyone could come to this God and be filled like a nursing mother. This abundance, this idea of abundance. Wildlife down below uh, uh, kind of is at the base of her as a way of showing that she had control and power and dominion over the animals and over the choicest meats she could provide for you if you came into her temple, if you came and bowed down before her. Wildlife surrendering the base, depicting, like I said, the dominion over the choicest meats and flavors. All of it created to communicate abundance the provider of every need, hunting and other cravings, magnificence, awe-inspiring, lavish. The idea is this, is that if a Greek child were to go to her father or her mother and to ask, what is Artemis like? That the parent could walk the child to the temple and could point at it and say, this is what Artemis is like. You want to worship this God? Come see where she lives. Come look. This is what Artemis is like. This, my child, is what our God is like. So that last fill-in in your thing, the temple was meant to reveal what, where the God lived and what the God was like. 
A temple was meant to reveal where a God lived and what a God was like. Now watch as the Hebrew, we go back once more to Hebrews. Watch what the Hebrew author does here because he makes this shift or she makes this shift. If Jesus is the film fulfillment of Moses, if everything he does follows Moses, but better in a grander, in a, in a more incredible, fulfilled way, look what happens here in Hebrews 3, starting uh, verse 6b. It says this, And we are his house. We are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Moses was faithful as a servant over a constructed house, but Christ is faithful as a son over a fulfilled house, not one built with stone and brick, but with flesh and blood. We become God's temple. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans after a violent Jewish uh, resistance. And the majority view is that Hebrews is written before the destruction of the temple because often in Hebrews we find references to the temple and its uh, practices written in the present tense, which has led most to, to conclude, well, if we're talking about the temple in the present tense, the temple must still exist, and therefore the book must have been written before 70 AD. But recent scholarship has suggested that Hebrews was actually written after its destruction, one of my favorite theories is that Hebrews is written as a sermon after the temple's destruction to be circulated among the synagogues addressing a Judaism without the temple. It was a message to help Jews process how to deal with the fact that the center of their religion was now gone. So the author is comforting and communicating why Jesus is greater than anything and everything that they had just lost. That Hebrews is actually written to be circulated as a sermon as, as Jews and as uh, followers of Jesus who are still practicing uh, the sacrifices and still practicing the patterns of Judaism were mourning and grieving the fact that everything, the whole center of their religion, the temple, had been destroyed. And so out of that, this sermon rises up to say, you are the temple. We don't need God doesn't need a house anymore because he has found a new home. He's moved in to us. I'd like to invite the band up as we conclude. God doesn't need a temple anymore because he has you. You are the place where God lives. You are to bear witness to what God is like. And we find this in other places in the scriptures. In Corinthians, it talks about that we are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in our midst. Later on in 2 Corinthians, it says that we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. In Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, it says, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. First Peter 2, as you have come to him, the living stones rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God's plan is to make his dwelling in us. And that through that dwelling, we might then be able to show a watching world what God is like. So if your son, your daughter, your niece, your nephew, your grandchild, the children downstairs wanted to know what God was like, would they look at you? Would they say, my father, my mother, my aunt, my, my uncle, my grandma, my grandpa, my Sunday school teacher. That is what God is like. Would your coworkers, your neighbors, your superiors, your employees, your social networks, your enemies, would they say the same thing? Remember, if a Greek child said, Dad, I want to know what Artemis is like, they'd take him to the temple, he'd point it to him and say, that's where she lives, and that's what she's like. And turn to the people that we interact with. If they sensed, I want to know what God is like, or I want to know where God is, would they look at you, God's new temple, and say, that is what God is like. We just finished up an Advent season as we remembered this idea that the fulfillment of Moses, the prophet we've been waiting for, the word was made flesh and began to dwell among us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. This incredible, astonishing fact that God has moved out of his house and made residency with us and said, you will now be my temple. I want your life to look like me. I want to reside in you. And through that transformational work, you can begin to show the watching world what it means to follow Jesus. Now this new year has come, and I pray that our resolve as a church, we make a lot of resolutions, but our resolve as a church would be, this would be a place. God doesn't live in this space. This is just a building. There's nothing special about the brick and mortar in this place. But that people might be able to come into this place and to see the real temple and to see the real God living in you. And that everyone who came here would be able to know where God lived and what God was like because of the interaction with us. So my, my hope and my prayer for us as a church is that this year, 2017, would, we would resolve, our resolution would be, this would be a space that Williamsville and Clarence and North Tonawanda and everywhere that we live, the people would say, I need to know what God is like. And that neighbor, there's something about them. The Spirit of God lives in them. They are the temple. That's my hope. That's my prayer for us. But it won't happen by trying harder and being better and creating the right programs. It begins when we embrace the astonishing truth that the God of the universe has made his residency with us and is cleaning house from the inside out. And only when that transformation, when that residency take root in our lives and the transformation becomes starting and initiated with him, that our lives might begin to reflect that nature back and that we can truly be that temple that Christ desires 
us to be? Will we be the temple of Christ to the world this year? Will we be the temple of Jesus to the watching world?